0: of Scripture like this. So Luke 14, that's where we are tonight. Thank you again for being here. It says in verse 25, I'm going to read this verse to you and really read this this passage of the message and we'll focus on one aspect of the message again tonight. As we consider this, it's my desire that by the time we hit Wednesday that you really are grabbing a hold of this entire passage and as we conclude that maybe, let's say Thursday or Friday, you get cut you know, but you bleed Luke 14, if you know what I'm saying. It becomes really part of you. And that's my desire within helping you with this passage. And I think this is a powerful passage of scripture. Notice this, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Then he concludes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Actually, last night as we were looking into this passage, we realized here is a passage with massive, massive crowds of people. Jesus begins to turn and speak to the crowds. At this moment in his ministry, he is so popular. I mean, he's done so many miracles in the sense of even raising people from the dead. I mean, he is a miracle worker of miracle workers, and he's a preacher. And sure enough, all of these massive crowds come to hear him as he begins to preach. And as he begins to preach, he is calling them to be authentic disciples. He's calling them to true Christianity. He calls them to come to me. As he consider that, even that call, we looked at some of that even last night, it seemingly laying a foundation of, of the reality of, of this gospel message. And yet the greatest gospel preacher ever, that's Jesus. He is, you could say, the gospel message. He's the gospel. <laughs> but in many ways, you begin to consider Christ and his message as he's preaching. He doesn't just preach to the lost. He's preaching to the Christian too. And the reality is this is a double-edged sword, you could say, as it begins to go in and pierce deep, and it challenges a lost person to totally come to Him completely, to truly repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone. And yet for the believer, we see that for that person, they're called to supreme love for Him. I mean, that's the idea that you forsake all idols of human relationships for the one true God. Last night as we begin to kind of unfold chapter, chapter you know, 14 and really verse 26, we realize he's not calling you to go around and hate everybody because the Christian message is not a message of hate. He's using a Hebraism in the culture. And we looked at another passage. Remember, it was Matthew 10, 37 that really gave us the answer. Should you love people? Yes. But you should just love me that much more that in comparison, it seems as though it's like hatred. You just love me supremely. Jesus is calling people to forsake all idols of human relationships and, and love him supremely. So really last night, if you were taking the note, <laughs> the final note, you came to that conclusion. What does it mean to be a true disciple? And actually, if you have a big heading, I would call the heading the true cost of real discipleship. But point number one last night was simply this, a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who loves Christ supremely. And then I ask you the question, do you love him supremely? And really just even asking that question is a a convicting probe to our heart. Because how often are we so quick to love other things and put people and things upon the pedestal, even self? Well, tonight as we begin to look at this passage, we hit another shocker within the message because as he's preaching, he doesn't just stop there and say, well, you cannot be my disciple if you're unwilling to do this. But now verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is that supposed to mean? Actually, tonight my prayer is that God would use this message to stir us to full surrender to him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you now, what good would it be if we come and we hear a message that would just tickle our ears, that would just fancy our thoughts, but it wouldn't change our hearts and lives? What a waste of time. Dear God, I pray this would not be a waste. As we would humble ourselves before your word and you would give us ears to hear, please, God, would you give us ears to hear? We stir our hearts. Lord, would you empower me as specifically as we hit the message of the cross? I ask God, would you just use it? Lord, I realize not everybody in this room has been born from above. And so there are people in this room, if they were to die tonight, they would die and they would be eternally separated from you. They've never repented and trusted in Christ alone. So God, I pray bring lost people to genuine salvation. But then, God, for those who have been truly born from above, Lord, stir our hearts, transform our lives. Use your word to to stir us as we would once again submit ourselves to you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, thank you so much for what you've done with us and on our hearts. Lord, work in us now. Please use this time for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You know, I think about uh, my best friends in ministry are pastors. I mean, you can imagine when I go to a church, it's not like the church congregants kind of invite me to their church. I, sometimes I even meet people and I say, hey, Jeremy, you should come to our church. I said, well, talk to your pastor, you know, in one sense, because me, it's really a connection with the pastor. We also know this, too. If we come to a church and encourage a pastor or the pastoral team, in one sense, we can encourage a whole church just by encouraging them. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. But hey, we've got this relationship with these pastors. And, and one, of my, one of my dearest friends, actually, I've known for many years, is down in Coconut Creek, Florida. Actually, not super, super far, um, but down in Miami area, Coconut Creek. His name is Adam Alley. He pastors the First Baptist Church of Coconut Creek. I've known him since college age and time, in a sense. And, and Adam and I uh, have this conversation consistently. And you know, it's funny with Adam. He has a way of saying things that are sometimes somewhat shockers, He's got a way of kind of making strong statements, and then he kind of explains stuff. Well, anyway, I'm talking to him on the phone, and he says something like this. He said, Jeremy, do you know what the problem is with Christianity today? So I say, no, Adam, what is it? I mean, you're going to tell me. And he then says this. The problem with Christianity today is this. There are too many Christians living for God. Now, I pulled the phone a little bit away from me, kind of looked at the phone, kind of funny. I said, Adam, I'm sorry. It sounded like you said the problem with Christianity today is that there are too many Christians living for God. And he, he said, yes, that is what I said, and here's what I mean. Jesus didn't ask you to live for him. He asked you to die for him. He said, do you realize that so many people are trying to live out the Christian life in their own strength, and that's not the way it works at all? You die to self, and you let Christ live in and through you, and now I'm going, oh, okay, now I get what you're saying, Adam." And it's true in many ways. And As we look at tonight's message, we come to this whole idea of the cross and we kind of are saying, okay, so what does it really mean to bear the cross? And tonight I'm going to start off and I'm going to give you the, the point from the beginning. I'm going to freak you out, you know, from last night's message. I'm going to give it to you right from the beginning, but then I'm going to hold off on these subpoints till the very, very end. Okay. So kind of throw you for a loop a little bit at the end. And then I'm going to bombard you with subpoints. I'm not going to be like, boom, 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 boom. Okay. And you're going to be like, you know, catching fire, you know, or whatever. Maybe this, ipad smokes or something i don't know but you but that's how it's gonna look tonight as we begin to kind of unfold this but what's the point tonight number two or number one if this is your first night a genuine disciple of jesus is a person who surrenders to christ fully a true follower of jesus is a person who lives out this life the idea of fully surrendered as much as they know They submit to the higher authority in their life. So as you begin to consider full surrender, he's talking about bearing a cross. Could you imagine what that meant to that crowd? Are you kidding me? They understood what cross-bearing meant. They saw crucifixions on a consistent basis at this moment in history. That's a shocker that he would even, even use this kind of lingo. And I will say this, it's not the only time he used that kind of lingo. Actually, go with me for a minute. Hold your spot here. And go with me to the book of John. And look at John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, before Jesus goes to the cross, we have John chapter 12. And notice verse 20. In John 12, verse 20, it says this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to see Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. So people wanted to see Christ. Philip went and he told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them and he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's really interesting as he answers this way. Because you're like, okay, they're asking to see you. And you're talking like this? It's just a little bit different. Obviously, something greater on his mind as he communicates to them. But he says again, the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's himself, to be glorified. So it's right near the end of his ministry to the point of his death on the cross and even resurrection. And notice what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Then he says this, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does he mean by this? This is the great paradox of scripture in many ways. As we begin to kind of look at this, we see in verse 24, and you don't have to be in the agricultural industry to really understand what he's saying here. He's talking about that kernel of wheat, that little that little seedling in a sense. If it doesn't fall to the ground and die, if it's still living and doesn't die, nothing happens. But when it dies, and with the soil, and with the, with the air, with the, with the sunlight, and with the rain, I mean, what happens? All of a sudden, out of death, springs forth life. If it doesn't die, it remains alone. It must die, so therefore it can bear much fruit. Now, here's my question to you. Who is he talking about in that verse? Who? Himself. Jesus. It's the, again, the Sunday school answer. It's like I think of at night. Sometimes we read a Bible story to my kids and, and, um, and Kalea, you know, the being the youngest, when she was even really young, sometimes she just wouldn't track with me, you know, as I'm reading or whatever. And I'd ask questions at the end and she would say finally, and she couldn't answer questions. She was like, dad, can you just ask me the Jesus question? And so I'd say, okay, Kalea, who died on the cross to save you from your sin? And she'd say, Jesus. And I'd say, good job, (laughs) Kalea. She's older now, does better. But notice verse 25. Again, if you think about Jesus, without his death, burial, there would be no resurrection. There there would be no way of true salvation. And because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, consider the fruit. Consider, I mean, many of you sit here as fruit of that, you know, and the reality of even further spreading. But then you go and you hit verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Now, wait a second. That's mean if you cling to your life and say, no, this is my life. I'm not giving my life to Christ. No way. That's, it's my life. Then you lose it. You don't gain eternal life. But it's a person in a sense who gets to their own life and realizes in one sense it's kind of like hatred. I forsake it all because he's worthy and he's what life is all about. He is life. And you embrace Christ, you forsake sin and embrace Christ. What happens? Now you gain eternal life. And in other words, how does that happen even in a normal person? He must come to an end of himself or she must come to an end of herself to then what happens? They die to self and then Christ begins to live in and through them. It begins at conversion, doesn't it? But it doesn't stop there. I mean, you meet people sometimes and they kind of consider that, you know, well, I have been saved. And they talk about it all in the past, all the time. And yet there's an element of going, well, what is the gospel doing to you now? Because it doesn't just just stop there. It's like if you want to say, sure, okay, there's completion, but there's ongoing results from this. I mean, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature, a new creation. All things are passed away. Literally what? All things are becoming new. So for the genuine believer, there's a death to self, but there's a constant death to self as well. But it begins at conversion. A person who says, I'm not going to die to self, and I'm not going to truly repent of my sins. Sure, I don't want to go to hell, so you know, I'll pray the prayer. That's no, that's no true conversion. Are you kidding me? And yet, how many people, even across this nation, especially in the South, who've been brought up maybe in a church culture more so you know, than other areas of the country, and yet you've got this whole dilemma of people thinking, I prayed a prayer and I'm in. And it's not a prayer that saves you. Now watch, go beyond this as you consider this passage. Again, he's not, he's not done there. I mean, he's, he's taught this throughout his ministry. But if you go back to Luke 14, he uses the phrase, bear your own cross. Are, are, what like that is a shocker of a phrase are, are you are what are you are you saying come and die i mean that, that is radical speech because when you think about a cross though can i tell you we're used to it we're just kind of used to the emblem you know we gotta cross 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 you know People got bumper stickers, you know, with crosses on them. You know, um, you got you know necklaces with like crosses on them. You know, earrings maybe with little dangling crosses. You got pastors tattooed a cross on here, yeah, you know. <laughs> and um, I say that because, in one sense, we just I, we treat it kind of trite. And I get it; we understand it's redemption. But that would be like in our modern day, someone saying, well, that's an interesting charm on your necklace. What, what is that? And, and then she says, oh, that's an electric chair. You know, capital punishment. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> you know, what's that hanging for? Oh, that's a noose, you know, hanging. <laughs> like that is, just, that is just weird or odd, isn't it? And yet this is the symbol. It's a symbol of death. Jesus says... If you're going to be my follower, you got to bear the cross and come after me. And if you're unwilling to do this, I'm so sorry, you can't be my follower. This is, this is a little bit different than the kind of Christianity that we're, that sometimes we, you know, that Jesus, he so needs you and he, he can't live without you. And oh, and, and so it's like, and then all of a sudden now you get this Christianity world where it's like he's like the lucky rabbit's foot in the sky, you know, and, and you just kind of need him because he can't, he can't do without you. No, actually, He can. Do you realize before eternity, um, present in a sense, before we came into being, there's something still called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three and one. Perfect unity. Perfect love. Perfect peace. He didn't need us you think about Allah, there's no Trinity in Allah, is there? Allah needs something. He needs some worshipers. But now you have God Almighty who doesn't need that. But the truth is, because of His love and His kindness, he, he constantly is giving, and because of that, He gives, and he, he hears mankind, and for the sole purpose of His glory, and yet His love to exude towards mankind. This is, this is amazing love that He would even create us, that He would even sustain us, and then yet in our fallen condition, He would provide salvation for us. That's radical. So when we look at this, the question is this, okay, so we kind of see this, 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 this idea of bearing a cross, but what does it really mean? I think one of the best helps to do is to take you to Luke chapter 23. Go there, Luke 23. Now, as we look at Luke 23, <clears throat> this is an amazing study as we look at this. And I want to say, when we go to Luke 23, my first phrase I almost want to say to you is, well, hey, we're going to a really sacred portion of Scripture, but that would be kind of silly because all the scripture is sacred. Okay, so. But there's an element when you look at the Old Testament that the Old Testament, after the fall of mankind, you got creation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 3, you have the fall, this major fall, rebellion against God. And at that moment, it's like the brokenness of mankind and the brokenness of the culture, the brokenness of our world. It's groaning for a Messiah. I mean, the Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, she crushes, it is, will crush the head of the serpent. You start seeing prophecies. You start seeing how it starts to be unfolded and revealed. And and yet there's a need for a perfect king. There's no perfect king. There's a need for that perfect priest. Because where's the perfect go-between between between us and God? Where's the perfect sacrifice? The once-for-all human sacrifice for the human who's eternal. You needed the God-man. And yet it's all prophesied how he'd be born and how he would live and, and how he'd have to flee to Egypt and come back. He'd live in Nazareth. I mean, everything about this. Hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the life of Christ. I mean, I think God did that so that the dumbiest of dummies could see it. If you study prophecy and just see the prophecies within the Messiah, are you kidding me? For a person, I mean, for Isaiah 53 to be so clear and deal with crucifixion language that's not even been invented yet, some 700 years before Messiah ever came, talking about this? Are you, are you kidding me? I mean, how, how else could this be of God? It, it, this is a book from God. This is, this is reality of history from God. So when you begin to look at this, there's an element where there's a culmination now where Jesus has come on the scene, but he's getting ready to leave the scene. And what's amazing about that is that you go to chapter 23 and it says this in verse 1, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Now, wait, 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 wait. what's going on here? Actually, remember what happened earlier, because what happened earlier was Jesus even told his own disciples on multiple occasions, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be taken to the hands of sinful men, I'll be crucified and I'll die and three days later I will raise from the dead. He told them that on multiple occasions. Actually, even the the religious crowd understood this because they said, remember what he said? So let's put a guard there to make sure, you know, the disciples don't come and steal the body. And yet you begin to consider what happened. He's in that garden and he's praying. His disciples are falling asleep, have no clue what's getting ready to happen. And yet eventually he wakes his own disciples up and says, my betrayer is at hand, come. And he's not running from him. Actually, he's going right at him. He's making his way to to Judas and to all of those entering the garden. Some would say historically at least 200, if not close to 1,000 people as they're making their way to find this criminal Jesus, you know. And Jesus walks straight up to them and he says, Who are you looking for? And what do they say? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am or I am he. And at that moment, the book of John tells you, at that moment he says this, boom, they all fall flat on the ground. I mean, at the sound of his voice, I kind of laugh and say, hey, who's in charge? <laughs> he is. All of this was the plan of God. I asked you again, he said, who are you looking for? I said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, I am he. Remember the commotion. Peter tries to kill this guy, and he dodges, and Jesus heals his open flesh wound right there. Peter put away the sword. There's a fleeing. They, they go, and then what happens? They take Jesus, eventually that evening, before a man named Caiaphas. Caiaphas seems to be the religious leader of the day at that moment. And Caiaphas begins to have false witnesses, but they're not adding up. So what does he do? He finally asks Jesus the question, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the living God? And Jesus responds, I am. Actually, the truth is, is, at that point, it's like, here is, here is Caiaphas. He should have dropped and worship before Messiah, but he didn't do that. He grabs his own clothes. He begins to rip his own clothes. He's gritting his teeth, and he's saying, he's a blasphemer. And that's what they would do if they heard blasphemy. He's ripping this clothes. Again, a blasphemer. And again, if they were in charge at that time of their own nation, they weren't. Because remember, Rome had come in and conquered. And so they could, in one sense, rule their own nation to an extent, but capital punishment was reserved strictly for the Romans so what did they do that night they begin to beat him now I mean they're they're just pounding him they're pounding him they mock him they throw a row prophesy tell us who hit you they're mocking Christ he's taking blow after blow actually early in the morning they take him before Pilate some 6 a.m and this is where we are here and actually I want to fill in the gap a little bit because I say this in the gap in this sense when you read one gospel, you get one gospel writer's account. But when you read all of the gospels, you begin to see all of them together speaking about what is highlighting and important to them. I say it the same way. If someone came and visited your house, let's say it's, you know, it's Thanksgiving or whatever, people come to your house, and so you live on a street, let's say you live on a street corner, and so people park here and over here and family over here and over here and kind of different spots, and then all of a sudden... a little fender bender, okay, oh no, that's not good, you know, police come by, and you talk to the police, and the police says, listen, did anyone see it, oh yeah, a bunch of people saw, okay, did you guys see it over there, okay, can I get someone as a witness over there, what about someone on that side of the street, what about over here, what about on this side, yeah, and what are they going to do, they're all going to tell you the same story, but they're going to tell it to you from their angle, this is the gospel writers, And if you really want to get the full angle, you got to read all of them, and you got to put it together that way. And that's just, they're highlighting what's important to them. They never contradict each other ever. That's what's so amazing about this as they begin to tell the story. But watch this, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowd, He says, I find no guilt in this man. Now remember, there's much more conversation than what's just recorded here in Luke. And you can read the other gospel writers because even to the point where you've got his own wife who says, I've had bad dreams, don't have anything to do with this, please. You know. So there's an element of conversation. But here's what he's recording there. I find no guilt in this man. He tells him clearly, How could he? He's the sinless son of God. And you go further, verse 5. But they were urgent, saying, well, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Hey, Jesus, show me a miracle. Hey, circus worker, kind of show me a circus act. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus did absolutely nothing for him. He's not a circus worker. The chief priests and the scribes, they stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in a splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate actually became friends with each other that very day for before they had been at enmity with each other. Notice verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, you have brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. And look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So I will therefore punish him, I'll chastise him, and I'll release him. I'll I'll appease you to an extent. Here's what I'm going to do for you in one sense, it's kind of crazy. Are you, are you not catching all this, the innocence claims of Christ? That, he, that they're saying he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. Notice verse 18. But they all cried out together. Again, this is a mob crowd. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And then 19, verse 19, describes Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection. An insurrection started in the city and for murder. So here's a murderer. He would be a modern-day terrorist, you would say. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. He wants to release him. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And the voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted and released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder and for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming from the country and notice this, here it is, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus Now there's a lot to fill in in a sense sense here, but what's going on here? I mean, they want him dead, mob, crowd. Pilate is frightened for his own life. In the past, historically, He did have an insurrection. If another one happens, he will definitely lose his life or lose his job. He may very likely lose his life. That's the problem. And so he knows this. He is frightened by this mob. And yet they know that they've got him wrapped around their little finger in a sense. And so there's an element where they're riling up people. And so he has this idea. I know what I'll do. Go get Barabbas. Barabbas, again, being this style of criminal, the worst, you could say, there at the time, standing beside Jesus. And so here's Pilate. Okay, so which one? Well, let go free. This is a perfect plan, he thinks. And they begin to yell out, give us Barabbas. He, he, He can't believe that. Well, then what will I do with Jesus? Crucify him, put him to death. I mean, Pilate, actually, in one of the other gospel accounts, he washes his hands in a wash basin in front of everybody saying, I believe he's innocent, but he sentences him to die. Actually, the people begin to cry out, his blood be upon us and our kids. And then, what happens? They would begin, and what we don't see here, but we do see in other accounts, that they would have led him to then be scourged. What would happen there? They would take the person to a spot where there'd be some Roman soldiers, and what they would do is they would strip the person who's going to die, they would strip him of all of his clothes. They're actually going to take then uh, his, his arms, tie them together to a whipping post, whether stretching the body out in front. Some would say even stretching up above their heads and then tying that rope, throwing it up over a beam and pulling it tight. As they would do that, his toes would barely touch the ground. And then you'd have a soldier with a flagellum or a cat of nine tails, or a scourge. These are all synonyms with this, but what is it? It's a wooden-handled whip. It's leather lashes tied very tight to this. Embedded in those leather lashes were bone and metal. And what they would do with this cat of nine tails, they would come to the person and they would whip it across the body. As they would do this, those leather straps would wrap around the body, would hit the skin, the heavy pieces would bruise the skin, the sharp pieces would actually stick into the skin, so the moment they would hit the body like that, and they'd pull it back sharp and hard. As they pulled it back, it would rip open the flesh, and that's just one hit. And they would work their way from the shoulders all the way down to the knees as they're working the body, and oftentimes being exhausted to pass it off for someone else to work the body. Actually, historically, there were many people who did die of just a scourging like this. But the idea was this don't let them die, get them to the very, very edge of death, make them suffer. Why would this happen? Actually, 700 years prior, in Isaiah 53, it does say this, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that would be upon him, uh, really the idea would be is, is with his stripes we're going to be healed. It's like we would get peace because of the, what Jesus would do and how he would take this, this longing, this, this, this pain, this suffering on himself, and that's just physical suffering it's not even talking about the wrath of God being poured out from heaven. It shouldn't have destroyed everybody, but it seems to funnel down to Christ. But you've got this whole idea, and, and can I remind you that if they would have cut the rope there, he would have fallen to his own pool of blood. And what you would have seen would have been so gruesome that, again, many people died this way. But literally, from shoulders to knees, there wouldn't be skin on the body. You wouldn't see the skin. You would see bodily organs, and you would see bones exposed. That's That's the reality of crucifixion in that time. They then take that scourged person and then they begin to mock him even more, playing the game of the kings, actually placing a crown of thorns. I've been there in the region and man, I'm telling you, those thorns, they grow long and hard and sharp and they're placed on his head and then they take the king's scepter, it's like a reed, a small stick, they take it and they begin to pound it on his head, forcing the crown of thorns into his head. Then they're taking his beard. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 52, they rip it out by hand. I mean, they spit in his face. I mean, everything about this. And what is he doing? He's he's taking on your sin and my sin. He didn't deserve this. But he's paying the perfect price for us. As you begin to consider beyond that, They gave him a cross. Maybe just the crossbeam. And I say that because the crossbeam would have weighed about 110 pounds. He stumbles with this. It's like he's Via Dolorosa. That road is a busy road to this day. But I'm talking about a busy road. He's, he's, it's a public display as he's making his way there. And he stumbles with the cross. And again, they're make, taking him to Golgotha, but he's not there yet. And now as he stumbles, hey, you, grab the cross, or crossbeam even, and take it to follow after it. And then you, this is where he is. He's bearing the cross. As you go even further, we look at in the passage, though. Notice verse 27. "'And there followed him a great multitude of people "'and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. "'But turning to them, Jesus said, "'Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, "'but weep for yourselves and for your children.'" For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs which never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What is that all about? You begin to read Revelation. You begin to consider the abomination of desolation that seems to occur, and what happens. It's like flee, flee for your own life. There's an element of you. If they're doing this right now when the wood is green, if they're doing this to Messiah right here in front of you, what will they do with my followers? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. They take them to the place of Golgotha, the place of Calvary, the place of a skull. These are all, again, synonyms as they would have stretched you know, Outside the city walls, they stretch them out. They make sure the crossbeams all together. They, they, they take five to nine inch spikes, not through the center of his hand because it would break bone and rip flesh and not hold anything, but through the base of his hand area, the wrist area. They, they pound it in one side. They do the other. They do the legs. They put it into position. And here he is hanging between heaven and earth. And he's not alone. He's, he's there in the middle and he's with two criminals, one on either side. And he's, and he's hanging there. As you look at this, it's interesting because in verse 32, two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What? Do you know what the normal thought and the normal thing would happen on a cross of someone being crucified? They would be cursing the people, crucifying them. And Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. This seems to be pointed right to the Romans. It's like here they are as they're doing all of this. And then they cast lots and divided his garments. And then the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, this chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him, and here's what it said. This is the king of the Jews. In one sense, that was his crime, but it was also a sense of mockery. And it's like, like, look at the king of the Jews. And then verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But notice what happens. Actually, in verse 40, miracle of miracle happens. And this is a miracle. And I say this because if you read one of the other gospel accounts, you'll realize both of these criminals mocked him initially. But God began to open up the eyes of this one in a real way. And notice this. He says to him, he says in in verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He's a Jewish person. He knew this. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. What are you doing cursing him? We're all hanging on trees. We're cursed. Actually, he even goes further. He says in verse 41, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. What? What criminal says that? I deserve to die for my crime and my punishment. He's admitting this. He's coming to grips with his own sin. He sees it clearly. He's not making excuses. Well, you know, if I would have had a better upbringing but I didn't hang out with the wrong crowd. It wasn't even me. Actually, they got the wrong person. Now he's saying, we deserve this. We, we've done wrong. He has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, and then he said to Jesus, he said, Jesus, actually, it depends on even the translation, Lord or Lord Jesus, to him to say that is, is an amazing uh, acknowledgement of who he is, but then he says this, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If Jesus has a kingdom, what does that make Jesus a king? This this is not light stuff here. It's not random. Hey, you on a cross over there. No, I'm 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 suggesting to you this guy would have had a serious understanding of the Old Testament. And not just that, he would have probably heard Jesus preach in the past. But for him to say this, looking to him now as King Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're going to go there. Is this kingdom earthly? No, this is a heavenly kingdom because you're going to go to that kingdom. And would you consider me even? He doesn't say, save me. He says, would you even consider me? And notice the response. Again, you have a humble sinner broken over their need for salvation. Jesus, would you even consider me? Can I tell you, if you're ever going to come to Christ, you don't come to Christ on your terms. You come to Christ on His terms. Repentance and faith. Scripture is very clear. Where you're saying, I don't want my sins. And there's a brokenness over your own sinful condition and your need of a Savior. And I want Christ as my Savior, as my King. As you begin to consider this, notice this, remember me when you go to your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today he will be with me in paradise. Could you imagine? Like this, this is like, I mean, what's paradise? It's another name for heaven. He's saying, you're gonna die today in just a bit. So am I, but don't worry. You will be with me there in paradise. what? what, what? He just got rescued. And I would ask this question to you. What good work did he do to earn salvation? Nothing. He didn't even get baptized. What? He didn't even go to church. I mean, hello? I'm saying this to say so many people try to put things on to salvation, and yet it's Christ alone. You look to Christ alone. Alone. He humbled himself. He had no good works to somehow say, God, well, look at these things. No, he's deserving of capital punishment. You might even say here tonight, Jeremy, you don't know what I've done. And I'll say, well, then you, you probably don't know who he is because as the greatest king of kings and Lord of lords, the greatest savior of all, he can forgive you. He can cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. That is amazing grace. It's not something you earn or deserve, but by grace, he's looking to Christ alone. Notice this, and now it was the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, so from noon to three, the brightest time of the day, a bright culture, light kind of color rock and, and dirt and everything too, and you're, here it is, the, the sun's out, and all of a sudden, it's not out. Whoa, 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 it's, it's pitch dark. Do you think anyone's screaming? Uh, No one has their flashlight app. (laughs) There are no street lamps that light up because it got dark. Where would you go in a really rugged, mountainous culture? You know what you would do? You would basically not go anywhere, and you're hearing screams of everybody. Actually, at the same time, what's going on in the temple? They're slaying the lambs. This is why, because Jesus dies as Passover lamb. He is the Passover. He dies specifically on Passover. Are you kidding me? Like, how could this all fit like this? And yet they even said, we want him dead, but not at the feast. But they're not in control, are they? He must die on Passover. He is the Passover lamb. And in all of this, as the lights go out and nothing, no one can see anything for the next three hours, what's happening? Everyone's thinking, especially if you're Jewish, you're going, what's going on here? Because darkness meant judgment. This is the very judgment of God, the wrath of God. Everyone, you, you don't go, God is not mocked. He knows how to get a hold of our attention. And sure enough, at this moment, it's like everyone's and then we all know the rest of the story because at, at three o'clock in the afternoon, what does he do? He cries out one last time, to tell us die, or it is finished. And at that point, it's paid, it's like the idea is paid in full. And and Jesus bows his head, he gives up the ghost, and they know he's dead. Remember they even a, a, a soldier with a spear wants to test it out, and he takes a spear right up underneath the rib cage, right into the heart region, and as he does it, he pulls it out, blood and water pour out. I mean, he is dead, he's unresponsive, and they know he's he's dead. They'd break the other one's legs, and yet if they would have broken his legs, they would have ruined prophecy because no bones would be broken. So the reality is of all this, they had no clue of all this, and then they put him in a borrowed tomb, and sure enough, I mean, in one everyone, sense, everyone's seemingly sad, but not realizing what's getting ready to happen, just like he promised that he would do. Three days later, what does he do? He raises from the dead, he conquers sin and death and hell. This is Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior to whoever would turn to him to be saved. And I say it that way because not everyone does. And there's some of you in this very room that you've never repented, and he's called you to repent, he's commanded you to repent and believe the gospel, and you're rejecting that. You're rejecting actually his love, which means in the end, if you continue to do that, you may very well receive his wrath. That's how serious this is. Don't treat this lightly. This is God's kindness. It is death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, I said a lot. Let me give you the subpoints. Here we go, ready? Bombard you. Here, I told you I was going to do this. We go back to this passage in Luke 14, and here we go, and we'll finish. As you begin to consider this passage, what does it mean to bear the cross in verse 27 of Luke 14? And I would say this, if you're going to bear the cross, number one, cross-bearing is a sign of total submission to the higher authority. In other words, if you're really gonna bear that cross, you're submitting to the higher authority. And in one sense, Jesus is submitting to the Roman authority, but ultimately he's really submitting to the higher authority. And if you're gonna to come to Christ and come after Christ, you're submitting to the higher authority. It begins at salvation. It's not like you know, hey, you get saved, and then one day later, maybe you've got to give your heart and life to Jesus. And the people that kind of separate this are like, do you need to read your Bible? There's an element. Of, that's not repentance. You, you kind of sort of you know, get you know, rescued a little bit here and then maybe a little bit more rescued there when you kind of finally dedicate your life. What are you talking about? That, that dedication really should begin at salvation as much as you know. Now, you might not know that. But as you begin to learn that, what happens to the true believer? He dedicates. She dedicates. She submits. Genuine cross-bearing is a sign of total submission to the higher authority. Number two, cross-bearing is a public display of humiliation. I mean, if you are going to live for Christ, you will pay the price. It's a public display. Jesus hung on a cross naked. I mean, the reality of a public display, he's bearing the cross through the city streets. What do you expect? Now, within the church, you get saved. We all pat you on the back. We hug you and we say amen. And we, you know, we've been praying for you or whatever. And we're excited for you. But the moment you step out and then you start going to tell your neighbors who are, who are not believers. And they go, oh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And then you tell your co-workers Yeah, why don't you just keep that to yourself? And we're starting to get a little bit of persecution in America? But it's a little bit different. I mean, you had the big pullout in in Afghanistan, and we're slaughtering. People were being slaughtered. Christians, I mean. There's an element of you gonna bear the cross you're gonna you're gonna pay the price a public display if you humili- what do you what do you expect do we really expect everyone just to be like man we love you christians they didn't love christ and then number three cross bearing is a willingness to die to self and to follow christ completely now when I say this willingness to die to self and to completely follow Christ, you you have to see this, and it's Luke 9 as we are concluding. Luke 9 and verse verse 23. And I want you to see this because listen to what it says here because it's dying to self and following Christ completely. Notice verse 23. And he said to all... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And what's the next word? Daily. Daily. And then follow me. But notice that? To deny himself and take up his cross daily. See, it's not just a one-time dedication thing of the past. It's a constant dying to self and letting Christ live in and through you. Some of you know the name Warren Wiersbe, kind of a saint of the past who's, who's passed away not too many, I think just maybe a year or two ago. Wiersbe said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the idea of you living, sacrifice, the idea of I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Okay, well, the, he said, you know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? Is a living sacrifice wants to keep climbing off the altar, <laughs> and you got to keep climbing back on the altar as a living sacrifice. He didn't say go kill yourself. He said go die to self, and submit yourself. And so the truth is, is we as believers. We are willing to die to self and follow Christ completely. And actually, this is what really leads to real life, which is so interesting. Because you would think, if I cling to my life, and no, it's my life, and I'll have a great life. Actually, no, you lose it. It's the one who learns to deny self and constantly die to self and let Christ live in and through them. Where you're like, what? they experience this life and life to the full. So here's my question to you tonight: Are you fully surrendered to Christ? Are you as a believer, as much as you know, fully surrendered and committed and dedicated to Christ? And I remember at one point in time, I was 17, I had come to Christ at a younger age, but at 17, I I come broken. I'm talking to this counselor, it was at a camp, and I said, hey, I want to dedicate my life to the Lord tonight. And I'm just in tears. I just said, I just, I'm ready. I'm, I've been holding back, and I'm ready to fully surrender to Him. And you know what he said to me? I'm so thankful. He was a very gifted counselor. Here's what he said. He said, Jeremy, that's exciting that you're going to give your life to Christ. So my question to you is, what about your life right now is not dedicated? If you're going to dedicate it, obviously it hasn't been. So what about it is not dedicated? And he was asking that question because he was helping me to see my idols. Because there's so many things where we just kind of pull back. And you know what's amazing? Is that this thing right here, my heart, not the the mic, the heart. (laughs) This thing is an idol-making factory. The moment you think you kind of got one, you know, out of there, it's like another one pops up. And we need him all the time. We need to constantly be submitting ourselves, dying to self. Now, I'll tell you, this is where real life begins. And if you're holding on to things right now, I'm just, I beg you and I, I can't make you do this, but I'm calling you to complete submission and total submission as much as you know how in your own heart and life to say, dear God, I really submit myself to you. I commit my heart to you. I want to bear the cross daily. And remember in Luke 14, he doesn't say, he says that the, initially, verse 26, to come, whoever comes to me, must be this way. But at verse 27, he doesn't say, come to me. He says, comes after me. Because anyone who truly comes to Christ will naturally come after Christ and bearing the cross daily, submitting themselves to Him. May God help us do that full surrender tonight. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, as we have heard Your Word and we have considered the death, burial, and even resurrection, we are so grateful for what You've done in providing salvation. Lord, we could never have, have done this ourselves. We could never have somehow made this up of some kind of redemptive story. God, you are the greatest author. And yet as we begin to consider what you have done, I, I just pray tonight that, that we wouldn't just stand in awe and we would go, wow, he sacrificed. But we would consider our own hearts and our own lives and how we hold on to things And we would surrender. We would say, dear God, forgive me and cleanse me. And I do submit my heart to you. It's not just a one-time repentance and a sense of salvation. It's the initial time. But we constantly are submitting ourselves and turning to you. Daily being rescued from our sin. Not in some form of somehow earning favor with you, but because of what you've done for us. So God, tonight, as as our hearts are being challenged, I pray that we, there would be no idols, specifically the idol of self, that we would die to self. Dear God, help us. We so long to grasp for our own life and for our own idols and climb upon the altar, in a sense, or climb off of it. Lord, help us to climb back up and submit once again to you. Lord, we know that, for those who are true believers, we know that's where we experience true joy in the Christian life. And so, God, I pray that we would not be foolish but we'd be humble people who would submit to you fully. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I wonder who in the room would say this, Jeremy. Right now in my life, as much as I know before the Lord, I am fully submitted to Him as much as I know. That's where I'm living right now. And you just slip your hand up tonight. Jeremy, I think that's where I'm living. As much as I know, I think that's where I am. Okay, amen, you can put your hands down. But not everyone could raise their hand to that, and the truth is, is, Tonight, I wonder, here's the next question, well, what are you going to do about it? If you're not fully submitted, then shouldn't you submit? And I wonder how many tonight would say, Jeremy, I, I realize that I need to die to self even tonight, and even tomorrow, and even the next day, and, and at every moment. And Jeremy, in many ways, um, pray for me. God is speaking to my heart and my life. I, I need to submit my heart and my life once again to Him as my Savior, as my Lord, as my King. And it's not asking to re-get saved. That's not it at all. It's not being born again and again and again. The idea that you would be submitting your heart and your life to dedication because he died and did what he did for you, our response should naturally be full consecration to him. Tonight, who would say, Jeremy, pray for me. God is speaking to me about fully surrendering and submitting to him. And you just slip your hand up and hold it up. Yeah, yeah, and you can put your hands down. Tonight, as God has spoken to our hearts, I want to invite you. Would you respond to that? I'm going to have just our pianist play, my wife play something. Would you talk to God about these things? you'll see how God will use this message in your heart and life because you think you're committed and dedicated and then you walk out of here and something else happens and you begin to realize how much self rules and we need to die to self. We need Him, don't we? Is there anyone here tonight who would say, Jeremy, I'm here tonight and I don't think I've ever truly come to Christ. I mean, maybe tonight as you thought about the people on the crosses, one utterly rejects Messiah, the other one humbles himself and and repents. One to this evening is in hell while the other one to this evening is in glory with the Lord. But maybe you've never come to that point of full repentance in Christ alone. Is there anyone tonight who would say, Jeremy, pray for me. I don't know if I've really been saved yet, but I know I need to be. Pray for me about that. You just slip your hand up. I know to pray for you. Jeremy, pray for me, please. I don't know if I'm really saved. And this concerns me. It's amazing when God starts really working our heart. Thank you. Appreciate that. And we want to give you opportunity if you want to talk to somebody tonight too. We have a special prayer room here. we got trained counselors and we want to give you that opportunity to even respond. Uh, tonight if God is speaking your heart and you want to go talk to someone even right now uh, you could make your way maybe just to the lobby would be the easiest and we'll have someone meet you there at the lobby and help you that way. But I'm going to have Pastor come and just kind of close us out in prayer tonight. Again if God is dealing with you don't Leave here tonight without responding to Him. And thank you guys again for listening.